second of a two-part series. That means we began the series last week, and we end it this week. That's my kind of series, because uh, I'm used to putting together like 40-some week long series. Two weeks, that's it, two weeks. And we've called this series Singing Theology at Christmas, because when we sing songs, they are a way of declaring truth about who God is, but in song, by putting weaving, weaving truth into music, into a song, and then we're able to declare that as we sing. And man, the Christmas carols are full of theology. Theology being the study of God. That is who God is, a knowledge of God. And when we get into the Christmas season, you have this whole set of songs that are telling us something about God. And so last week we looked at joy to the world, and we looked at the, how joy to the world declares something about God as King and Savior. That is, Jesus come into the world, the rightful King and the true Savior into the world. And we, we dug into that song, and we saw lots of theology woven into the lyrics. Well, this morning we're taking on another song. We already sang it. When we sang all the verses, go tell it on the mountain. Go tell it on the mountain. Now, what I didn't know about Go Tell It on the Mountain is it has an interesting origin story. I just didn't know where that song had come from. So I want to read to you as one historian uh, described at least the beginning of that song and how it comes to us. Here's what this, this uh, historian writes. Like many spirituals and folk songs, Go Tell It on the Mountain has a pretty murky origin. The song, song likely dates back to the mid-19th century, but spiritual. So this would have been a spiritual sung on the plantations. These spirituals would have been passed from plantation to plantation orally, disseminating the songs without sheet music, let alone recordings, making them difficult to date accurately. Now, the person responsible for making a, a Christmas classic out of Go Tell It on the Mountain is Nashville-born. This is Nashville, Tennessee. One of the firemen just got married, and he said, I'm going to Nashville, North Carolina for my, for my honeymoon, seeing who he could catch. This is a Nashville, Tennessee. He's a Nashville-born collector of spirituals named John Wesley Work, Jr. So if you, were, if you could see it, the fine print on Go Tell It on the Mountain, when we put that slide up on the, the last slide just a minute ago, it had John Wesley Work as the author, now in the public domain. He's the one that compiled it. Works, lifelong love for music, started at a young age. His father was the director of their church's choir, and though Work Jr. studied Latin and history at Fisk University, he organized singing groups as well. He combined his passion for history and music into his search for African-American spirituals. And with the help of his brother, Frederick Jerome Work, and his wife, Agnes, he compiled their findings and published them in the New Jubilee Songs as sung by the Fisk Jubilee Singers in 1901. And then the New Jubilee Songs and Folk Songs of the American Negro, published in 1907. And then it was in that 1907 publication that first featured... Go tell it on the mountain, as we now sing it today. So, the origins of Go Tell It on the Mountain, it starts on the southern plant, the plantations of the American South. 
as they sang about God's salvation. And so those origins help us understand why some themes are weaved through the song, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Certain themes would be very important for a group of people in slavery in the American South and as these songs emerge on the plantations. So just take a look. I just want to just kind of bring those to the forefront, some of the themes and go tell it on the mountain and why they would have resonated in the context from which they came from. Take a look. Just some of the themes you see in the song. God cares for the lowly. He appears to the shepherd. That's part of the song is that he appears to the shepherd. God cares for the lowly. Another theme in that song is that God becomes lowly himself. This would be very important, you could imagine, if you are lowly on a southern plantation, singing about God's care and that God himself becomes lowly, Christ in a manger. And then God saves. He sends Christ as salvation. It's in that third verse of the song. And then last, the lowly then go speak at the highest point. You go tell it on a mountain. No more restrictions. You go tell the good news on a mountain. You're not in a pla- on a plantation. You're now on a mountain. You're declaring good news. God has saved you. You can see how that song would resonate in the context of American slavery in the 19th century in the American South. And so, if I just had to summarize why that song might resonate and from where it comes from, here's how I would say it. A song like this would have reminded them that God cares and God saves and God will free them to proclaim the good news on the tallest mountain. No more restrictions. Some of the origins of that song. If you felt a little, if you felt like it had some, it had a particular beat to it, if you felt like you needed to tap your foot or clap your hands to that song, there's a reason. It comes from the spirituals, those folk songs. The American South, from plantation to plantation. It's a song that would have resonated. But here's the thing about this song. The reason that it has become such a popular song, particularly at Christmas, is not because it resonates specifically and only to those that would have been living on a plantation in the American South. It's because this song resonates with the human story. It's not just an African-American story or resonates in that context. It resonates with all of us because it tells the human story. It tells the story of God saving all people. You go tell it to every person. And so there's these, there are these two theological truths. That is, there are these two truths about God that have been woven into that song. And yes, being woven in in the context of American slavery on the plantation of American South. But listen, these two theological truths are foundational. They're woven in. They're woven in. They make a difference because they resonate with your story, my story. These two key truths woven into this story. So let's just take them on. That's the bulk of the sermon. These two theological foundational truths. Here's the first one. Now, this is not a lyric. I'm pulling this out of the song. It's woven into the song. God the Son became flesh, fully God, fully man, in order to save sinners. That's the good news. That God the Son became flesh. Okay, two two scriptures, 
two scriptures are sitting as the foundation of this theological truth. First one, I think many of us are going to know it, John 1.14. This is where John records the Word. The Word, if you remember, at the front of the Gospel of John, the Word was with God, the Word was God. This is Christ. He's the Word. The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. And we've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is, this is, this is the, the biblical foundation for the song. God became flesh. And then 1 Timothy 1.15. Take a look, here it is. Paul writes this to Timothy. In his first main letter to Timothy, he writes, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. He comes into the world. So the Word becomes flesh. We see His glory. And He comes into the world to primarily save sinners. That's good news. So, so here's, here, if I, if I had to go one layer underneath that, maybe just to, maybe, maybe to what we might call just common sense. If God comes into the world, that changes everything. Now, we don't typically think of it in those terms. We sometimes just keep this in some religious context. Like, it's just, it's just some abstract idea somewhere out here in the religious realm. No, we're talking about God the Son, fully God, fully man, entering the world. When that happens, everything changes. Like, things fundamentally change at this point. And so what happens... What happens when God becomes flesh? God the Son becomes flesh and literally history changes as we know it. Because now God in His love, sending the Son into flesh to save sinners, which you'd be part of that, that group, I would too. When that happens, something fundamentally changes. And when that moment happens, when He came into the world, literally the heavens broke out in song. Why would they break out in song? Because something fundamentally has shifted in the universe. I know people talk about a meteor hitting the earth and the dinosaurs are gone. And we think of that as a watershed moment. I could care less about a meteor hitting the earth. We're talking about God in flesh. This is the watershed moment. And when it happens, the angels in the heavens begin singing and they declare something really big has happened. Luke chapter 2, you probably know the story. Luke 2, pick up with verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And so would you probably if that happened to you too. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring... Good news that will cause great joy for what? All. All the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. That is, He's the Anointed One. He is the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and, uh, cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those whom His favor rests. Watershed moment. So big, 
that the heavens break open in song. Now for us, we just have a hard time with this because we just keep this in the religious world. We just make this, this is something that happened way back there, happened to some people we don't know, but we come to church often because that's just what we're supposed to do. No, we're talking about a watershed moment in human history that changed the universe. God became flesh in the moment it happened, the heavens started singing. Why? Because it changed everything. All right? Some days later, you know, Mary and Joseph, they take Jesus to the temple to consecrate him. This was part of the law of Moses to consecrate the firstborn, and Jesus is the firstborn. And when, when he comes into the temple, there's this thing that happens. There's this man. He's in the temple. He's been waiting for a very long time for something to happen, and and he sees, he sees that the angels are singing. So pick up Luke chapter 2. We're going to say in Luke 2, we'll pick up verse 25. Look what happens. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, and he was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen what? Your salvation. Which have been prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of of your people Israel. By the way, that's all people. The Jews and everybody else. I have seen your salvation. He breaks out in song. Because this is the thing that fundamentally will change the world. And that salvation and that call, that, that anointing will take Christ all the way to the cross. And that cross is the place where sin will be imputed. That is, it will be put on Him and God's judgment will be on the Son in order to pay for the sins of the many. And then He will then give that righteousness away to all of His children. And it doesn't mean you, you just, in, 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 uh, in, a sh- in the blink of an eye somehow, that, that you are like all of a sudden righteous and you never do any wrong. No, you still sin, but God looks at you and says, you are the righteousness of God because of what Christ did. It is the watershed moment. Here's how Paul says everything I just said. He was just much more concise, but he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. I just preach what was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Here's what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And it started the moment God the Son became flesh. That's the good news that's woven into the song. Go tell it on the mountain. Alright. So that's that first big theological truth. God the Son became flesh, fully man, fully God, to save sinners. Now you know what you do when you hear that news? Uh, Kathy, you, you really started it out exactly the, where I was bringing it. What do you do when you get that, when you hear that news, when you come to know that news? You go tell people about it. You go tell lots of people about it. That's the second theological truth. It's really key. It's woven into the song. 
The gospel is the power of God for salvation and must be proclaimed to all people. You don't just tell it to the people in your little valley. You get up on a mountain and you tell it to the people in the, in the next valley. And then you get up on the next mountain and you go tell it to people in that valley. You go tell all people that Jesus Christ is born. Salvation has come. Like this watershed moment has happened. It literally changed human history. Go tell it to every person. It's not just for the Jew. Jew first, then everybody else. But everyone gets the message. Now, this is rooted, this theological truth is really rooted on Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Sorry, I had a moment where I thought it was 17. Here's what Paul writes. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and the Gentile. Every kind of person gets the gospel. It's literally the power of God. We talk about a lot of other things in our world being powerful. But this is the power of God. It's the thing that gets down to the root issue, the root problem in human history. It is the power of God for salvation. And I know that sounds really churchy, but I don't have another way to say it. It is the thing that changes everything. So it's no surprise then that when Jesus came back to life, oxygen re-entered, I mean, came back into his lungs, his body was restored And just as he was about to ascend, he tells his disciples something. You probably remember this. Matthew 28. We'll pick up with verse 16 this time. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, interesting, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Can I, you just let me stop there at verse 18. Did you see who's not in that verse? Hitler's not in that verse. Did you see that? Not Nowhere. Stalin, not in the verse. No North Korean leader, nowhere in that verse. Biden, not in the verse. Now listen, we're going to be real. Donald Trump's not in that verse. You hear me? Elon Musk, not in that verse. Jeff Bezos, not in that verse. Steve Jobs, not in that verse. One authority over heaven and earth, Jesus. Okay, so as we go into 2022, please, please remember, no one will destroy the earth. There is not a Democrat or Republican that will destroy the earth. And Putin has no chance of destroying the world. There's one authority. Now, he can make all all of our life miserable, but he will not ruin things. I just wanted to make sure we all understood what Jesus is saying here. One authority. So, as you get upset or frustrated, whatever way, whatever direction, please remember Matthew 28, 18. One authority. Okay. All right. I just felt like we needed it right there. All right. Because we are going into 2022, y'all. And it's going to get intense. You think Virginia's election was intense? It's coming, y'all. One authority. One authority. You have one vote. Maybe lots of posts on Facebook, but you've got one vote. So calm down. One authority. Verse 19. Because there's this one authority and he's king over heaven and earth, you go and make disciples. That's you make students of all nations and you're baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them. What are we going to teach them? We're going to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
You go tell it to all kinds of people. I don't care what language they speak, Jesus here says. It doesn't matter what their skin color is, what their socioeconomic status. You go tell this good news to every person. And you teach them what I have taught. You give them the gospel. And you baptize them as you do this. There it is. And don't worry, I'm with you. Because I'm the authority. I am the authority in heaven and on earth. Now what, now, but what happens if no one goes? What happens if no one goes and tells anyone else? Well, you've got a problem if that's the way this goes. Paul actually dealt with this. Romans chapter 10. It's in a larger context in Romans 9 through 11. But look at what he says in Romans 10. Verse 14. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching it to them? We have to go. You, people don't hear about Jesus unless someone is speaking the message for them to hear. It's almost like that's common sense. People don't come to Jesus unless someone brings the message. And that's the call for us. So this watershed moment that changed human history, taken all the way to the cross, we now go and we share it with others. Okay. Let's just do a review. Two foundational truths. We'll just do a quick review and then we'll get some application real quick. Two truths woven into the Gotel on the mountain is that God the Son became flesh in order to save sinners. That's woven into this song. It's woven into the Scriptures. It's woven into the Christmas season. Second is that the Gospel is the power of God for salvation and it must be proclaimed to all people. That's why you go on a mountain and you go proclaim it. You go tell it on a mountain. Okay? All right, some application. I got two things. I got a question. Really, it's two questions put into one. And I have a challenge. Here's the question. Is the gospel the foundation of your life? Now, if you didn't read any further, most of us are going to say, well, sure, absolutely. Yes, it is, because that's the answer we're supposed to give. Until I put this next question to us. Is the gospel like a band or the Vikings? I'm sorry, that says sports team. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. There, there may be someone in this room that likes that team. I don't know. I don't know. Might be talking about Jason. I don't know. Um, not me. There's another Jason. And for some reason, he likes the Vikings. Let's continue. <laughs> Is the gospel like a band or something, or a sports team, something that's important but not foundational? I just got finished reading a book called, I can't remember what the title was. Not, let's not go, don't go to that slide yet. Just got done reading a book. I can't remember what the title was, but it was about being a disruptive witness for Jesus. And this person argues through a very complicated argument that what has happened in our culture, particularly uh, our culture where we're trained to be consumers, it doesn't take long for Jesus, for church, for religion just to be another preference like any other preference. It's like, it, it's like having a, a sports team or like having a favorite band or like having your favorite political party. We all have our preferences and we've been taught that everything is flat and you just choose what you like. And Jesus becomes just another preference. And I think this is something that we have to fight against. Because, honestly, it's one of the great challenges in our day. Do you think there's anyone in Rona Krampus that doesn't know about Jesus? Probably very few. 
Probably very few. We just watched Home Alone last night. Uh, you know the movie, the one that came out in 1990. And they have a church scene. And they're singing the gospel in the church scene near the end of the movie. No problem singing about Jesus. Most people in the Christmas season know about Jesus. So where's the problem? The problem is, is that many of us who follow Jesus have just made him another preference along, uh, uh, alongside a host of other preferences. And so we come to church and that's good. But do we take Jesus with us into every aspect of life? That is your kitchen, your bedrooms, your workplaces. You know I'm coming, going here, driving on Old Farm Road. I've had some experiences this week. Very slow. Very slow. And I had to just remember I'm a follower of Jesus. A followers of Jesus don't act rude or mean when you're driving. So get off the bumper, Jason. Because it doesn't work anyway. My point is that part of the application, part of going telling on the mountain is not just using the words. You've got to have the words. But we also have to be matching that with a life where Jesus is foundation. So that when you go into an ordinary day that involves all kinds of different things, raising your kids, being bored, getting mad, getting talked back to, all those things, Jesus is there framing how you live. You know, Paul said it this way, if you remember in one of his letters to the Thessalonians, he says, you remember where he says this as it related to death? He said, we do not mourn like those who have no hope. We as Christians do not see death as the, as the ultimate thing to fear. Because we're Christians. So how we talk about death or sickness obviously matters too. So just, we take all of this with us into ordinary life. And we, that's, how, that's part of the way we tell it on the mountain in our context. All right, here's the challenge. It's going to seem real simple. Invite someone to church. Now listen, i got a vested interest. I would really like you to invite people to East 10th Street. I think we have something good going here. Invite them into our church family. But listen, bigger than that, invite them to a church. If they have been going to a church and they're not going to it, but they still have lots of friends there, help them get back into that church. I was talking to someone this week, and they have a friend. And they've been out of church. And that person said, I'm going to get them back in that church, or I'm going to get them back in our church. And I loved it, because I thought, yes, they don't have to just come to our church. But listen, this is your easiest connection. And I know it's like, well, that's not preaching the gospel. Well, you're right, it's not technically preaching the gospel. But in our culture, one of the great challenges to the gospel going out into everyday life is, that, is to help someone get into church on a weekly basis. You come to church one one time a week, it will do wonders for your mental health. It'll do wonders for your life. That is how you interact day to day. It literally, I mean, now, I'm talking, I'm talking, even Harvard has recently done studies about what being a regular attender of a religious service will do for your mental health. Now, I just happen to think we do it because it actually is true, and it's the watershed moment in human history. But if you need a pragmatic reason, it actually will help you. But I don't lead with that. Just invite someone to church. That's, that's the challenge. All right, next step. I don't know if I've ever given an option on a next step, but you got two here. And I know they're not inventive. They kind of just walked right, walked, they just tread the path we just walked. Read a lot of Bible this week or invite someone to church. Take your pick. 
Now, if you're a super Christian, you'll do both. But, barring you being a super Christian, just pick one. Pick one. Now, why in the world would we have Bible there? Because the one thing, the one other great challenge I haven't mentioned, is that one of the reasons that the gospel isn't foundational is because we don't give it all of our attention. Reading lots of Bible will actually begin to train your mind to see reality as God's kingdom really exists. Do you know why some of us, and I mean across the American, the American society, do you know why politics now divides us more than religion? Because guess what people are putting inside into their mind more than anything else? Politics. I was just talking to someone recently. Uh, and they were sharing a recent uh, study that they had, had seen referenced. That people are more likely to marry someone of a different religion or a, a different belief, a set of beliefs than they are someone of the opposite political party. What has happened to us? I mean, I just sit with that. Sit with that. A Christian would be more willing to maybe marry a Hindu than they would to, if they were a Republican to marry a Democrat. One of the reasons our minds are so steeped in certain things like politics or you make it sports, make it whatever else it could be, is because that's what we pay attention to. And so therefore we read the world through that lens. How do you get a lens by which you see the world through the kingdom of God? There's no magic wand. I don't have a magic wand. I can't just like Tinkerbell tap you and all of a sudden your mind is transformed and you see the world through the lens of God's kingdom. You and I have to be taking in large amounts of Scripture. And you'll say, well, I don't understand all of those Scriptures. Well, nor do I. I don't understand every piece of the Bible. I'm going to be a lifelong student of the Scriptures. But you know what? I just, I just, I listen to lots of Scripture. Literally. So we could talk about how this works. Maybe we can do that later. But literally, I, I often will listen to it. Is it boring sometimes? Yes. Because I have not yet, I have not yet, my mind has not yet been completely formed by God's Word. So I just keep listening, and I know God's Spirit will do something. So take in lots of Scripture. You'll be amazed at what it begins to do to your eyesight as you look out into the world. Some things will become much less important, and some things will become much more important. All right. Here's, let me give you one option for reading lots of Bible. Here it is. We're starting a, 20, a, a, a read through the Bible plan January 1st. Now, we are using the Bible app, so if you don't have a smartphone, I'm so sorry, I do not have a solution for you. Just pick up a Bible, I'm sorry, I'm looking at you, you may have a smartphone, but I'm saying maybe you don't, Um, just pick up a Bible and just start reading it cover to cover. I don't have a better solution, I'm so sorry. Um, We'll work on that 2023. All right. But the Bible recap is the resource we're using alongside it. Actually, I just came up with a solution, Holy Spirit moment. This is a book. You could get the book, and it literally tells you what to read each day. Well, I don't know where I was when I came up with this. I, I'm so sorry. It literally is a physical book, and you can have a physical Bible, and you could read the chapters it says to read. Okay, I got so locked in on my smartphone, I couldn't see beyond it, although I've got a picture of the book. I don't. So sorry, y'all. I'm so glad we could process that together. Thank you. This, this is a book. It's also a podcast. So if you do podcasts, every day it gives you a summary of that day's reading, and it's a little bit of a teaching. Because you're going to read parts of the Bible that make no sense, 
And you're going to have a teacher alongside you that gives a very short summary. It's six or seven minutes a day. You can listen to that. Or you can read it and read the chapters in the Bible. Now, I'm saying join us on the Bible app. I'll be sending a link out later today. I've already done it once. I'm going to do it again. You can just join up. You just need an account on the Bible app. But if you're like, I don't want to do the Bible app, but I want to read along, get the book. It's called The Bible Recap. And just open to day one, and it says Genesis 1 through 3. Go get your physical Bible and read 1 through 3. And you just do that day 2, 3, all the way up to 365. Why do we do this? So we can do it together as a group, and we can read lots of Bible together. That's the goal. And in the end, it will help us to be shaped by the gospel, which is the power of salvation. And we will be much more prone then for it to be the foundation of our life, and we are telling it to all people through our life and through words. It's like going and telling it on the mountain. Let's pray. Father, I just now ask that you would help us. We are a needy people. We are sinners, but we have been saved by grace. And now we are sinners, covered in grace, declared righteous, and that is really good news. Help it to be foundational. Help us to have discipline. Help us to do it as a church family. Grow us. Grow us numerically, but grow us in depth. That we may become the kind of people who meditate on your word day and night like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in season, our leaves never withering. We pray that in him who is our Savior and Lord and the smartest person in the world. Jesus, the anointed one. And together we say, Amen.